millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Lydia Kim. Our podcast today is produced and recorded in Crawford School, the leading graduate policy school in the region. The Crawford School has an amazing selection of short courses and degrees on offer, which you can take a look at by going to crawford.anu.edu.au. There's something there for everyone, so make sure to check it out. Today, I'd like to welcome Quentin Grafton, whose voice I'm sure everyone's very, very familiar with. His professor of economics and a public policy fellow at ANU, and is also director of the Center of Water Economics, Environment and Policy at Crawford School. Welcome, Quentin. Thank you, Lydia. Great to be here. A lot's happened this week. Um, we've seen a bit of a fallout after the Pacific Forum. We've heard rumors of Trump buying Greenland spicy. We've also seen the EU reject Boris's backstop plan. So, Quentin, what's one policy issue in the news that's caught your eye over last week? Well, there's lots to choose from, but from my perspective, water. We here in Australia facing droughts in the southeastern Australia, and we've got a whole set of issues about how we can manage our water in a better way. So a report came out in June, and there was highlighted today, actually, in terms of the media, in terms of what's called a water sharing plan in the Barwon Darling. That's the northern area of New South Wales. And that plan basically was set up in 2012 and is allowing a lot of extraction, far more extraction than in the past, in terms of upstream irrigation. What it means is that downstream communities are now suffering from a, a drought three years ahead faster than they would have done, and all sorts of issues associated with water quality. So to me, that's a big issue. It's, it's, a, it's a water issue, uh, and I think the listeners know I care about water, but it's a bigger issue, I think, than that, because this, to the, this year, 2019, is 30 years since we had the Fitzgerald Inquiry, which looked into corruption in the Queensland police and the border sets of issues in Queensland. And I was just reading that yesterday afternoon about issues about regulatory capture and how how uh, decisions are made that are not in the public interest. And, and it would be good to, to, to refer back to that and think about what we need to do today, not just in water space, but in other spaces about how we can actually get good outcomes for Australia and Australians and how we can get those outcomes. And, um, and I think that's uh, beholden on all of us to think that through in terms of a public policy space. What do we need to do to avoid uh, particular interests dominating decision-making, what do we need to do to make sure that the population as a whole and the national and public interest uh, gets first-order priority? That is definitely a very important issue that I'm sure some of our listeners have at least something to say about. If you do, please head on over to our Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, um, to write a comment or to give us your thoughts. And you can also reach us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or email us at podcast at policyforum.net. So let's move on to this week's topic. Today, our panel will be discussing climate change and its relationship with food production. 
Earlier this month, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, released a report titled Climate Change and Land. The report attributed food systems as significant contributors to global greenhouse gas emissions. Food systems refers to the production, transport, processing, packaging, storage, retail, consumption, loss, and waste of foods. Yet the report also draws attention to ways in which climate change is threatening the future of food production and food security. So today, we wanted to unpack this complex relationship and ask, what can food-related industries, consumers, and governments do to mitigate the challenges presented by climate change? We have a fantastic lineup today. Um, do you mind introducing them, Quentin? No, not a mind. I, I'm, it's a real pleasure to introduce the uh, panelists that we have. So first up is Dr. Mark Houghton. He's director of the Climate Change Institute at, here at the ANU. He's also a uh, intergovernmental panel climate change vice chair. So he's had a lot to do with the IPCC as well as climate change science uh, in his uh, illustrious career. And the second panelist, no, equally illustrious and, and well known in, in the circles of that uh, that we are talking about today, and that's the, Professor Michael Roderick. So Pro, Michael is a professor at the ANU Research School of Earth Sciences, and he's also a chief investigator of the ARC Center of Excellence for Climate Extremes and System Science. So we really have a great panel, two great speakers that we can engage with in terms of this important report. So we we'll look forward to having the questions and the answers from the panel. A truly exciting lineup. I can't wait for us to dig deep into this topic. So with that in mind, let's hand it over to the panel. Welcome to our panel, Michael and Mark. We're so pleased that you took the time to come and visit with us and talk through some issues in terms of climate change and land use. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, reported just in the last couple of weeks that the Earth's land surface air temperature has risen twice as much as the global average since the pre-industrial period. They attribute food systems as a significant contributors to global greenhouse gas emissions. Currently, people use between a third and perhaps a quarter of the Earth's ice-free land surface for food production. So clearly food, climate change, land use, they're all put in together in terms of this report. So for the first question, I'll go over to you, Michael. So how is climate change challenging land use? Well, of course, um, we've got a lot of warming. So over the last century, we've had a little bit more than a degree of warming. Scientists currently believe that that's mostly because of CO2. Um, what's most interesting is some of that warming could actually be caused by land use. So I think that's an interesting thing that not a lot of people have really factored in. So tell us about this land use. What's this land use change that's happening that could be affecting what's happening in climate change? And climate change is affecting land use, I suppose. It's sort yeah. of an interesting picture, isn't so it? So scientists would say that's a coupled system. Okay. So that would be the technical term. So the interesting thing there would be that by having land use change, predominantly clearing of forests, um, there's a release of CO2 in the atmosphere which is um, uh, higher levels of greenhouse gas. But in addition, there's another effect where land use uh, decisions 
can actually either ameliorate or exacerbate climate change. So, for example, if anything that would reduce transpiration by plants... This is about water that goes into vapour, is that what... Anything that... It's the it's the thing that makes plants grow predominantly. Anything that would um, reduce that would actually lead to warming. So there's another effect there as well. So it's a highly complex thing, and um, there are scientists throughout Australia and around the world working on it, but the technical term is it's coupled. So do we know enough to be able to resolve these issues, or is it just too complicated for us to work out what's going on and what needs to be done? Well, we know we know quite a lot about the emissions from forest clearing. We lo- we know less about the emissions from land use decisions, say from agriculture. And in terms of, uh, uh, you know, most people on the planet live in an urban environment, and many of your listeners might be aware, but there's a thing called urban heating, where the cities get warmer faster than the surrounding countryside, and that's partly because there's less surfaces evaporating. So it's a fairly complex thing all up. Is that why landers' uh, temperatures are rising faster than the sea surface temperatures? No, um, that's, that's, p- that's part of it. The bigger issue there is that when you get excess heat at the ocean, some of that heat can be taken to depth. And, of course, if the heat is taken to depth, you can't see it at the surface, and that's believed to be what's happening at the moment. So the land is warming at roughly twice the rate of the oceans. So I suppose if the land is warming, we've got climate change, and then there's a whole set of issues that come with that, desertification, land degradation, potentially strains on water resources. So how does this fit in in terms of food, and in particular food security? And going forward from 2019, let's say, to 2050, how can we manage the increases that are projected in terms of food consumption? Some people are projecting that a 50% increase relative to 2010. How can we manage it as all in this couple system? And I'll pass that one to Mark, but we can come back to you, Michael, because I think it fits in with what you were talking about earlier. Over to you, Mark. Uh, thanks, Quentin. So, so our food systems are a significant producer of greenhouse gases and and that's through direct emissions, so from livestock, so methane from livestock uh, and nitrous oxide from our croplands, uh, also through indirect emissions, which includes emissions from land clearing and sometimes carbon sequestration in our agricultural systems, uh, but also from pre-farm uh, emissions associated with fertiliser use and uh, tractor use, etc. on farm but also post-farm emissions associated with transport and storage and uh, processing, retailing. And when you add up all those emissions together, they're about 29% of the total greenhouse gas emissions across the globe. And the Australian numbers are very close to the same thing. So so almost a third of our emissions are associated with our food systems. So they're, they're a far from trivial contributor to climate change. Um, but at the moment, they're getting just a bare fraction of the attention that, say, our energy systems are, that's our electricity systems, which takes up 98% or something of the oxygen in terms of climate change debates here in Australia, uh, whereas some of the other big contributors, there's almost no coverage whatsoever. So 
uh, as you pointed out earlier, is that uh, our food systems and our land use contribute significantly to climate change through those sorts of processes, but they're also highly vulnerable to climate change in places like Australia where uh, increased temperatures, increased heat waves, increased extreme events, uh, but also in the southern half of Australia, decreased precipitation all don't pay, pay, paint out a very good picture for agriculture. And so, in fact, those changes that we've seen already are dragging down Australian agricultural production, some estimates in some places up to by, by about 25% compared with what it would otherwise be uh, in the absence of climate change. So it's already having a drag on agriculture here in Australia and globally, and that's what the report um, shows out. Uh, but it's also impacting on land surface conditions. So it's the desertification and degradation aspect of it. And so that's where you've got a long-term trend towards reduced status of productivity, uh, so productive potential. And the estimate that this report uh, compiles is about a quarter of our ice-free land area is already degraded. So um, a really significant part of our agricultural resource and land resource is already degraded, so it's not in great shape. And that, of course, has impacts in terms of how we will be able to food the world in the future. So it's not not as though we're starting, <coughs> excuse me, starting out this race um, fresh. We're we're actually starting out this race with you know a limp and and uh, and pretty worn out from the previous part of the race with a quarter of our land already degraded. Yeah. So this is a critical issue, and so if we're going to have more than two billion extra people on our planet by twenty fifty, then how are we going to feed them? Will we be able to feed them? Or is, is it a question of managing and adapting regardless of what's happening in terms of uh, our emissions? Or is it a more 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 nuanced sort of argument? We not only have to adapt, we also have to mitigate, but we also have to do things differently in the context of how we manage our land. I mean, what, what's, what would you highlight in terms of what we need to do? That's the sort of triple sort of uh, issues to, to deal with is, is what we term climate smart agriculture. So it's agriculture which uh, reduces emissions or absorbs greenhouse gases, which enhances our ability to manage climate risk, particularly that arising from climate change, uh, but at the same time increases productivity. And uh, and there's lots of good examples of where that can be done, uh, but but they're often very isolated examples and and what we need to do is scale those up so that instead of being unusual, they're pretty much normal across agriculture right across the globe. And and if we can do that sort of change, then uh, we have a, a reasonable chance of actually doing all of those three things, you know, reducing greenhouse emissions, adapting to climate change and feeding the world. Um, but that's a real challenge. Um, it's talking about change in terms of policies and change in terms of practice, uh, which is way beyond anything we've tried before. But the good news, I guess, is that Australia is really well positioned in terms of this. So we've got some of the best uh, agricultural risk managers, you know, farmers uh, uh, in the globe uh, and who have developed ways of, of managing a, a variable and changing climate. Uh, and we can take that knowledge and that expertise and we can put it in other place, places where that doesn't exist. And so we can, uh, you know, lift the game for many parts of the world. And I think that's a major contribution Australia can make. Okay, so Australian farmers like the canaries in the coal mine, I mean, we're the sort of the first ones there in terms of dealing with severe droughts, uh, water scarcity issues, or are we just uh, just part of the pack? Uh, <laughs> no, so I, I guess uh, you, you could easily get a comment about a question like that, which says, oh, it's all happened before and whole civilizations have, have died in the ditch because of uh, desertification processes and uh, and drought and not being able to manage those things. 
the, the reality, of course, is that we're in a different world from the ancient Sumerians or you know any of those ancient uh, um, civilizations. Uh, we have a huge number more people uh, to feed. Um, we've got much, much more connected systems than we ever have before, both in terms of trade but also in terms of information, communication, um, genetic material and other things. Um, we've also got different systems in terms of the the motives for farmers. And so in Australia, farmers are considered to essentially be a farm business. It's a a business proposition. It's not a uh, sort of lifestyle choice. It's not a, it's not a, um, an activity that, that one just undertakes, uh, because your parents have done it. It's, it's run as a business. Other agriculture in other places is very different from that. And so we're dealing with an incredibly diverse system as well. Um, diverse in ways that perhaps previous circumstances haven't been. Um, but on top of that, we have potential to do things which we've never had before. Uh, so we can, we can manipulate the genetics of organisms in ways we've never been able to do before. Uh, we have forecasting systems which we've never had before to reduce risks. Uh, we've got information systems which can bring people up to speed much more quickly than they ever have before. And so, so whilst we've got challenges, we've also got ways of dealing with these challenges as way, the question is, how can we join up the opportunities um, in ways that actually result in really good solutions? Um, but also, how can we join up the different actors, the actors at government level, at industry level, community level, individual level? And so there's a whole governance challenge ahead of us, uh, which we haven't had before as well. Yeah. So it's about farmers making their decisions for themselves, but also hopefully for the planet. And it's also about governments and others involved as well, making the right sorts of decisions, I suppose. So, I mean, is it, is in the context, I mean, this sound may sound like a very silly question. So if we started to raise more kangaroos and less beef, is that, a, is that the sort of thing we're talking about? Or are we talking about putting more carbon in the soil? It, or it's just a, it's, it, it's a whole gamut of, of practices, let's say, in the Australian context. That IPCC report, uh, looked at, uh, there was about 7,000 different studies uh, which were referenced there. And in those studies, there were many different solutions that were proposed. And so there's about 700 different solutions. And and they were categorized uh, into, into different sort of classes. And then there was an assessment made of um, how useful those solutions were in terms of mitigation, how useful in terms of adaptation, desertification, degradation, and food security, and also what the cost of those were. And then and started to uh, sort of look at whether, in fact, there was win-wins in amongst, amongst those solutions, or whether there was trade-offs, where you know it was a win-lose proposition. And overwhelmingly, you could carve out win-wins from those solutions. So if they were applied smartly, um, intelligently, with good information, uh, then there was an opportunity to contribute to multiple goals with the one set of activities. The, the the key word is if we do it smartly, and and so that actually means we have to be raising the level of information which is put into agricultural decision makings, both the tactical and the strategic, uh, so that those um, practices actually do meet multiple goals rather than just meet a single goal, such as profitability. Well, it's very pleasing to hear that there are lots of alternatives available to us, but I would imagine it's more than just information, isn't it? There's obviously incentives for farmers and those incentive structures, both at a market level and indeed what governments provide in terms of incentives. So, uh, And speaking of sort of like multifaceted approaches, I imagine when it comes to the agricultural industry, you can't not talk about water policy as well. Surely they go hand in hand, and please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here. But Michael, are our current water policies sustainable? Are they 
able to support sort of our growing populations, our growing food demands? What do you think? Just to set the scene, in uh, 1960, at the start of the Green Revolution, um, the, we were feeding about 2 billion people. We're now feeding about 7 billion people. But the Green Revolution was partly about genetics, but it was mostly about irrigation. And so water policy was the thing, or water, water as a resource was the thing that enabled that transformation. In Australia, there's, in southern Australia, there's no more water. So in southern Australia, there hasn't been a proper outflow of the Murray-Darling Murray Basin system since the 1980s. So we're effectively using all the water and we actually have the capacity to dam all of the outflow to store it in reservoirs in 70% of years. So there's only a few floods can actually go. So in terms of southern Australia, we're at ground zero in terms of water policy, and the water policy initiatives are all going the other way. So the water policy initiative is to rebalance the water between the environment and other uses and irrigation. In northern Australia, it's a little bit different. Northern Australia is where I came from, so I grew up on a cattle property in northern Australia. I grew up with the Bradfield scheme, was... Actually, maybe you could t give us a brief description yeah. of that Bradfield scheme. A lot of people talk about it, but don't actually tell us what it so is. So, the Bradfield scheme has recently become prominent because of Barnaby Joyce has been promoting it. Bradfield is a very distinguished engineer who actually designed the Sydney Harbour Bridge, amongst other things. But one of his great dreams was to take water from the Herbert River, the Tully River, the Russell River, and take it over the range and then put it into the Burdekin, and then go further west and put it into the uh, Flinders and then take it down eventually to Lake Eyre. And the people don't get this. The basic idea, irrigation of crops along the way was going to be incidental. The, the aim was if you fill Lake Eyre up full of water, then it would evaporate and it would rain downwind, which is basically on New South Wales and Victoria. And uh, it's never happened. There have been, every 25 years, there's another major report on it since the 1930s. There have been many. I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime. But that's an interesting one because if you say, well, let's not put the water into Lake Eyre, let's just bring it down to southern Australia for irrigation. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The model there is bring the water to where the expertise is in irrigation. The alternate model would be to keep the water um, where it is in situ, which is all across northern Australia, and it's a significant resource that's undeveloped. And the IPCC's report, it seems, emphasised the need for more productive land use, especially um, with a continual increase in the global population as well as um, an increase in the negative impacts of climate change. 
um, on vegetation. And it also reported that land use, including in agriculture, is responsible for something like 16 to 27 percent of total um, human originating greenhouse gas emissions and about 70% of global fresh water use. So I might put this first to you, Mark. What role does the government play in guiding industry towards adopting more sustainable land use practices? I think the the roles of government are always always should be um, about the long term and the broad benefit. It's about um, you know looking at winners and losers across society and and, and balancing that out and uh, and and ensuring that the whole uh, you know the whole country moves ahead uh, rather than individual groups at the expense of others. And and importantly, when you start to think about climate change, there's there's potentially really significant winners and losers. And so one of the potential losers is our water systems. So all of the projections uh, for um, changes in water availability in Australia, southern Australia, are for re- reductions in water. So so um, the the likely change can be really severe, and and we're talking potentially thirty percent or more reductions in the Murray-Darling Basin flows over the next few decades. And that is going to put an existing competed for resource uh, under increasing pressure. And so in, in that circumstances, the current pressures in terms of you know, balancing out winners and losers between the environment and agriculture and urban use and industrial use uh, will just you know, be re-emphasised and that, that pressure will just build and build. And so the the role of government, I think, is to actually look very carefully at um, not just the current situation but, but potential future situation. And so whatever policies are put in place needs to take into account that potential increase in pressure on our water resources so we can best juggle the winners and losers in the future, not just thinking about the current circumstances. And if we think more broadly about that is that um, Australia, unfortunately, is – uh, on the receiving end of the negative side of climate change to a large extent. So there's not much good news uh, in Australia. Um, we're already hot and dry continent and we're likely to become hotter and drier. Only a few places likely to get um, increased in terms of you know, agricultural productivity and increases in livability. Um, and so so the broad picture for Australia is is not that great. And And Previous IPCC assessments have actually described Australia as being the most affected developed country uh, by climate change. The, the rational sort of perspective on that is is twofold. Um, one is to take uh, very positive and proactive action in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and so it's not just about doing our fair share, but it's about providing leadership to other countries and providing the means for other countries to actually do more in terms of reducing emissions. And secondly, it's about uh, adapting to the changes that we're already seeing and are likely to increase over the next few decades. So it's putting in place uh, the mechanisms, the information, the policies, uh, which will enable us to become much more adaptive, much more able to um, ride the waves of the ups and downs that are likely to increase in the future. So governments, I think, have critical roles there, um, both in terms of mitigation and in terms of adaptation. So are we on the right track, Mark? I mean, and here in Australia and and I suppose globally, but let's see here in Australia, are we doing the right things in the context of land use and climate change mitigation and adaptation in Australia? Um, partly, I think, is the answer. So uh, in aggregate, uh, our greenhouse gas emissions go, are going up and they've gone up consistently over the last five years if you take out the, the land use change sector. And clearly, if we're to meet 
either our Paris Agreement emission reduction That's what, 26, 28% reduction relative to 2005? 2005 by 2030. And um, and if we're to meet those emission reduction goals, uh, we, we have to do a lot more because at the moment we're going up in terms of emissions. We've got to reverse that and go down and go down substantially. Uh, if we're to actually do the key part of the Paris Agreement, which is actually meet global temperature targets. So the emission reductions are just a means to the end and the end is the reduction in global temperatures. Uh, then so we have the reduction to do, of the increase and in reducing the increase in temperature. That's right. Yep. So so it's it's to hit the below, well below two degrees goal or if possible the 1.5 degrees goal. Uh, and to do that requires uh, almost like a tripling of, of the action that uh, would be indicated under our current agreements. So at the moment we're 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 not there in terms of uh, you know the broad picture in terms of mitigation, but there's really positive science in in different areas. So so the um, growing uh, contribution of renewables of, of solar PV and and wind to our electricity system is one example. So whilst in aggregate it's not a great story, there's there's really nice um, elements which are which are very positive. In, in terms of climate adaptation, uh, we've almost completely dropped the ball. On that, in Australia, in terms of uh, you know governmental influence, uh, industry to some extent is picking that up. But at the moment, there's almost no research and development happening in Australia on climate adaptation, and yet it's becoming more and more apparent that we need to do that because we're suffering more and more to climate adaptation. It's shocking to hear that, actually, Mark. That uh, you know, given what you just told us about what's going to happen in context of the projections, that we're not making the effort, the R and D, or the thinking and the planning to to do something about it. But but. Perhaps we can take this down to another level. So clearly government's absolutely important in terms of making a difference here. But what about individuals, individual farmers or individual consumers? I think it's also important to remember that in this country, land planning and water planning is actually a state function. So it's not federal and it's actually not even local. The state governments farm off some of those responsibilities to local councils. So they're ultimately responsible so there's an interesting sort of um, paradox there that the federal government's responsible for emissions policy, but the state governments are responsible for land resource, agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. In terms of individuals, many years ago I worked in a, in a cooperative research centre for greenhouse accounting. So this is 20 years ago. So Mark is talking about dropping the ball. So just I want to get your listeners calibrated on this. 20 years ago, Australia had the world's first dedicated research organisation looking at how to sequester carbon into the land, both in terms of forestry, in terms of agriculture and in terms of rangeland. That only ran for one term and it was not funded anymore. And one of the reasons was it went hand in hand with a carbon price. So a carbon price is the thing that would actually close the circle here and it would allow, because at the moment, if you're a farmer, you're making money off selling your product. You get the benefit of having, for example, farmland that has a higher carbon in the soil will normally be able to hold more water in the soil. So that's good for plants as well and it's good for productivity. But it would be nice to close the loop completely and to allow people to actually make money of sequestering carbon because it is kind of a service. And so that's that's kind of out of the hands of 
individuals, although there are companies that are listed on the stock exchange in Australia who provide this service to businesses. So when you uh, take an air flight and they say, do you want to sequester carbon? Well, where is that carbon being sequestered? It's being sequestered by these private organisations. It would be nice to see a market develop in that. So Mike, how would you respond to that about like the carbon price? We don't have a carbon price, at least an explicit one in Australia. So is that what's needed to, to bring about the changes we're talking about at a producer level? Or is it something more, a combination of a whole range of things that the government needs to deliver <coughs> so in, individuals and companies can make the their actions count? What the economics profession overwhelmingly say is that a price on emissions, which is broader than a carbon price, so it's not just CO2 because it includes nitrous oxide and CFCs and various other things, but a price on emissions um, is fundamental uh, to uh, achieving significant reductions at the most in the most efficient way. Uh, but by itself, I don't think it's sufficient. I think the discussion we've had before suggests that there's a whole range of other things which are needed in addition to that. And that, that means uh, looking at water policy. It's not just about carbon price. It means looking at food and food security, reducing food loss and waste. Uh, it's about uh, how uh, governments can uh, interact positively in terms of building adaptive capacity across our institutions in the state governments who, who manage land and water um, with the farming community who manage land. And so, so there are many things that governments can do, uh, but carbon price would be a good start. Okay. Well, emissions price should be a good start. Okay, and emissions say. price. So that's one thing we got down on the list of solutions. And there's a bunch of other stuff as well that we can refer to the IPCC report. But what can an individual do um, at home, sort of in their everyday lives? What do Australian consumers need to consider when purchasing food um, or other things to lessen their environmental impact? I think at a household level, what we'd need to do is just have an understanding of where our greenhouse gas emissions actually come from in the first place. So doing a very simple household budget, and there's tools online that allow you to do this. So you look at how many kilometres you drive, what sort of car, uh, what your electricity bills show, that sort of thing, and uh, and describing your food consumption. And once you've actually got that picture, then you can actually start to say, well, I, I can reduce that if I wanted to. I could you know, ride my bike to the shops, that sort of thing. And, and you know, this reduces this many kilometres this week and that's the um, greenhouse gas footprint re- reduction that you'd have. And, and, and I think that's a good start. And, and clearly what shows up in most of these assessments is uh, energy-related emissions uh, can be uh, very substantial on a household basis. Um, our transport-related emissions associated with driving cars but also for some uh, families' air flights can be very substantial uh, and our food-related emissions can be quite large as well. And this particular report focused in a bit more on the food side of things because the other topics are covered in other sort of forums. But um, in terms of the dietary uh, component of this report, it, it simply showed that different diets have very different consequences in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. You can choose a diet which has very low greenhouse gas emissions embedded into it, or you can have diets which have you know very high levels of greenhouse gases. And sitting in amongst that, you can have a healthy diet pretty much right across the spectrum. The the other element which uh, the report covered was 
that many of the diets which have low greenhouse gas emissions are also associated with much reduced uh, incidence of the major uh, diseases. So um, <clears throat> low greenhouse gas emission diets are correlated with reduced incidence of type 2 diabetes, of cardiovascular disease and of cancer. And so by looking after yourself um, and your diet, you can also look after your planet and, and vice versa. And so I think there's some good news messages where, where we can have very constructive um, you know, change. Uh, not, I'm not talking about everyone going vegan or vegetarian, but just relatively modest changes in diets can actually make quite a big difference. And so we need to sort of think about this in a multi-dimensional way. It's not just about the individuals, but but if we look at the individuals again, you know, making informed decisions about what we do uh, can make a really substantial change. But by itself, dietary change or changes in farming practice and land use are nowhere near enough to stop climate change. To do that, we have to have major reductions in fossil fuel emissions. So it can contribute to it. It can be very helpful to it. And we can get lots of co-benefits from uh, changes in our food systems and changes in our land use. But by itself, that's not going to solve climate change. Well, thank you, Mark. There's a lot of food for thought. And what appears to be a simple ways forward are not so simple. There's a lot of complication in terms of, as you've said, these couple systems, Michael, and and thinking about what we need to do at a governmental level, at an individual level. So thank you. Thank you both for your insights and your experience that you brought to us today. It's been great to have you both here, Michael, and also you, Mark. My pleasure. Thank you so much to our guests today and to you, Quentin. Um, It was truly an invigorating and enlightening discussion that we had today. And I hope our listeners learnt as much as I did. Listeners, share with us your thoughts. Discuss, please. Uh, We encourage you to keep sending us feedback, questions, and comments. Just jump on our Facebook group and leave us anything there. Uh, All you need to do is type Policy Forum Pod in that search engine and you should find us. Each week at the end of the podcast, we answer some of your questions and respond to what you've said. So we'd like to look at last week's podcast, Stepping Up in the Pacific. In this podcast, we took a look into Australia's new step up to the Pacific. Our guests explored how Australia can respond to its Pacific neighbors' growing concerns about climate change and asked what China's increasing presence in the region entails. We had a comment by Jared on Facebook. And it goes, unless the new step up in Australia's policy is devoid of self-interest, it doesn't matter how much money is poured into the Pacific. We want a genuine neighborhood relationship that is based on compassion and care for the livelihood and survival. What are your thoughts on this, Quentin? Well, of course, we've got to put our neighbors first in the sense that uh, if we don't deliver for them, they're not going to necessarily be our happy and good neighbors. But but of course, every nation has self-interest in terms of what it does. That doesn't. Uh, that applies to Australia as much as any country. But but I think the key point here is that uh, we need to have a partnership, 
it's not a top-down, it's a partnership. So the people in the Pacific tell us they want X, Y, or Z. We may not be able to afford X, Y, or Z. We could maybe afford X and Y. We work with them to try and work through their challenges. So there's a whole set of issues about employment in Australia, being able to come here as temporary workers. There's a whole set of issues about climate change adaptation that is ongoing in the Pacific. So we can help in all sorts of ways, and we are, but uh, I think we we need to make sure that our, our rhetoric uh, uh, conforms with the reality and actually does deliver for, for our friends in the Pacific. And I, I believe that's perfectly possible. We've had good relationships uh, in, in the Pacific. We just need to make sure those relationships maintain at a good level and that we uh, just have mutual respect and, and a, a true partnership. I don't think it's that hard to do. <laughs> just We just need to focus on, on what's good for the Pacific. And then I think if we can do that, then uh, we'll end up uh, doing good for ourselves. I couldn't agree with you more there, Quentin. And we've seen the Fijian prime minister take to Twitter to express some of his thoughts. And it really reminds us that without Australia taking the extra steps in changing its climate change-related policies, I mean, one can only ask, will our relations with the Pacific really improve from here? Or is it only going to go downhill? Well, who knows where the future will take us, but uh, it's not about communiques per se. It, it's about relationships. And so I don't know what went on in those uh, heads of government meetings. Uh, only they can talk to that. But but I think it's important that we have a mutual respect. So obviously there are people in the Pacific for, for very clear reasons why they're most vulnerable in, in the context of climate change, have real concerns about uh, the speed of climate change mitigation. Now, of course, Australia has signed on to redu- reduce its um, uh, CO2 emissions by between 26 and 28% by 2030 relative to 2005. Now, that's a reasonable target in the sense that that's the target from 2015, but may not be a reasonable target in the context of what's happening globally. So if you look at all the projections associated with what went on in Paris in December 2015, it looks like we're going to be heading to more than two and a half degrees centigrade increase in terms of global surface temperatures. So that's a very serious concern and possibly more over three degrees. That's even with those pledges in, in place. So, so, so you can see why people who are living on uh, islands that are at the highest point, one and a half meters above the ocean, uh, are obviously very concerned by this. So it's not just an Australia issue in terms of climate change mitigation. It's a, a whole bunch of other countries and we need to step up to the plate. And the concern that some people have raised, and I don't know where we'll be in 2030, is that uh, emissions uh, uh, targets that we have may will not be delivered on. And we'll see in the next uh, 10 years, I suppose. But that's obviously a concern. So so I think all of those issues are up front and, and, uh, and they're facing it. So ahead of anyone else, those small island states in the Pacific. And we need to be aware of that and we need to do our share. And And it's not just mitigation, it's also adaptation because, uh, it, you know, it, it seems to me that uh, we are going to certainly be two degrees centigrade more or more in the context of uh, surface uh, temperature uh, increases over the next number of decades. So we'll need to make sure that we can provide help to our neighbours in terms of adaptation, as well as, of course, doing our fair share in terms of mitigation. Seems like we have a real uphill battle ahead of us. I hope, truly hope, that our policymakers can consider things from the perspective of these Pacific nations. So, We'd also like to extend a welcome to all the new members of our podcast group. Welcome to Amanda Rice. Long for short, long short, 
Ashley Young and Elias Halage. I'm sorry if I've pronounced any of those names incorrectly. Please forgive me. And an important reminder to all of our new members, we have some of our 99 policy problems but Brew Ain't One mugs to give away. To get your hands on one, you could suggest a topic for a future pod to us on our Facebook group. If we later make an episode on your proposed topic, we will send you a mug. Another way to get your hands on a mug, leave us a comment or a question on that Facebook group. If we discuss your questions and comments five times in either Policy Pod or Democracy Sausage Pod, we will send you a mug. Just make sure you let us know every time you mention your question or comment by leaving a comment on the respective post. Now, Quentin, I believe you have one of these. I have indeed. Martin gave me a mug uh, some months ago and I cherish it. It's in my office. I use it. It looks great. Right. And it also holds hot liquids. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> can you believe that? Wow. So Yeah. So, and you can drink from it. Wow. How oh, else? So, yeah. Wow. How else has it enhanced your life, Quentin? Well, I think it's it's a very colorful mug. So it, it, it's got this orangey sort of look to it. And so it says, oh, wow, you know, get up, sunrise, you know, it's uh, get up and go. <laughs> You know what? I am jealous. I personally do not own one of those mugs, Martin, but I would like to get my hands on one. Maybe I need to comment more on that Facebook group. Anyways, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you, wherever you get your pods. This episode was produced by the team at Policy Forum with executive production by Martin Pierce, writing by Liliana Casabon-Mitchell, and editing by Branko Svetoyevich. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, farewell and goodbye. And it's goodbye for me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 